This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. This talk is actually for people who don't really know very much about poetry. So if you know a lot about poetry, which Dharma Varma does, um, and Rachel, I think, um, yeah, bear with me. So um, I'm going to start with two definitions from various dictionaries, including online dictionaries. I really like a paper dictionary. I really like the book, and I like looking through. And I'm very fond of Chambers' dictionary because a lot of the descriptions of the meanings of words are very poetic. So, um, so the first word I looked at was create. What does it mean to create? Um, and I got various uh, definitions. To bring something into existence, from the Latin creare, Cre meaning to cause or produce. The other thing I liked was it also means to make a fuss or, uh, and complain. <laughs> you know, like when children are sort of having a bit of a... So, so, uh, and I think there is a bit of a... Um, you know, you have to have that sort of energy, really, to create sometimes. Um, and an online dictionary said, to cause to come into being as something unique that would not naturally evolve or that is not made by ordinary processes. So to cause to come into being is something unique that would not naturally evolve or is not made by ordinary processes, which is nice and mysterious. And the Chambers Dictionary says to bring into being or form out of nothing, to bring into being by force of imagination. So in a way, it's quite good to just think about what does to create mean. And then, because I'm a poet, I thought, well, what is a poem? Because I'm going to talk about poetry and writing poetry this evening. Um, A piece of writing in which the expression of feelings and ideas is given intensity by particular attention to diction. That's things like choice of words and phrases, rhythms, imagery, rhyme. So a piece of writing in which the expression of feelings and ideas is given intensity by particular attention to diction. I like Coleridge's definition. Prose is, prose is um, words in their best order and poetry is the best words in the best order. Mm-hmm. And Chambers says, a competi- composition of high beauty of thought or lang- language and artistic form. Anything supremely harmonious and satisfying. So that's the sort of territory we're going to be in this evening. So having looked at those definitions, um, I thought, well, what is a poem? So we've got something that expresses feelings and ideas. It uses language. It's an artistic form and it's created. And the implication of the fact that it's created is that it's something unique that's brought into being by somebody. So there's an individual who actually creates. Um, And obviously if you're writing poetry, you're an individual who's creating 
poems. So I thought I'd use these four areas to actually look at, well, how can this be a spiritual practice? And I'm going to talk a little bit about when it's not, um, because it's very easy for writing or any art, really, not to be a spiritual practice. So where to start? Um, I think I'm going to start with William Stafford. So uh, Wolf at the Door workshops, that there are ten of us who are sort of taking forward Wolf at the Door workshops, which are actually to um, use writing as a spiritual practice. And we have a website, (laughs) which you can look up if you're interested. So William Stafford was an American uh, teacher, writer and poet. Um, He was also a pacifist. And... um, He says a writer is not so much someone who has something to say as someone who's found a process that will bring about new things they would not have thought of if they'd not started to say them. That is, they don't draw on a reservoir. Instead, they engage in an activity that brings a whole succession of unforeseen things like stories or poems, essays, plays, laws, philosophies, religions. So I think sometimes we can sort of think, oh, there's nothing there. It's not there. I don't have any ideas. And what he's saying is, well, if you're writing, you don't start with an idea. You start with a process. And I think that's really important because spiritual life is a process. And writing is a process. So a writer often doesn't start with an idea I think you can start with an image sometimes, but the image just comes. And if we sort of reflect on, well, what's thinking like? We actually don't know what our next thought's going to be. It can seem like that, but actually that's not how it is. We don't, we don't actually know what the next thought's going to be. So writing is a way of bringing out something that you don't already know. That's why it's quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it can feel quite chaotic. Uh, it can feel uh, that you're in uncharted territory. And I think that's part of the uh, where we use our imagination. And that's part of where it's a practice. Because in meditation, or if we're trying to be ethical, we're often in uncharted territory. And there's a willingness to be in that uncharted territory. I've lost my page. (laughs) So a lot of writing exercises, if you ever do a writing course, are like this. They just give you some sort of prompt and ask you to write. Um, So I went on a Wolf at the Door retreat in 2000 and found it completely terrifying (laughs) for all sorts of reasons, which I'll sell you a few of them later. But there's something about, there's you, a piece of paper, and something to write with, and that's all there is. Um, And I've got quite a strong perfectionist tendency, wanting to produce something good, and having to let go of that really has been a very important part of writing as a practice for me. So the second Wolf at the Door retreat, I wrote one haiku. 
Uh, I, I felt completely blocked all week, and it was something like under swaying trees, thinking about this haiku, still missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it's been quite a challenge for me to write. Um, yeah, so ex- expressing feelings and ideas actually um, suggests the need for receptivity receptivity to ourselves, receptivity simply to what emerges when we are sitting there with a page and a pen, Um, and simply being open to what's there in experience. And that is not always easy, as you probably all know when you try to meditate. Yeah, so so to write, you really have to have that sort of receptivity to just whatever's there. And something always comes. So if you think, well, what's experience? You know, you have thoughts, memories, feelings, ideas, sight, sound, habits. And all of that uh, is experience. And we've got options in the way we relate to experience. Um, And I think some of you have heard about the gap, teaching of the gap. So our tendency is to either push things away that we don't like or pull things towards us that we do like, um, assuming that's going to actually be satisfying. And uh, so what happens when I write is that's what I start to experience. So there's a sort of craving like, well, I want to be able to write like Seamus Heaney. Um, I want approval. I want people to like what I write. I want it to be good. Uh, I want to be known as a good writer. So there's all this kind of craving stuff that appears. Um, and then there's the sort of aversion stuff, which is the opposite of that. So things like, I'm not good enough. Um, who am I to be writing poetry? Um, this is too difficult. Everything I write is rubbish. So those tendencies appear all the time. And so you're always looking for a sort of central point where you're trusting the process, you're letting go of the end product. There's a sort of curiosity about what's happening and uh, just being with what's there. And also uh, one of the things that William Stafford talks about is willingness to fail. So um, actually just dropping any sort of standard to start with and just allowing what's there. So this craving and aversion that happens is actually the clinging that is the self. So I'll say that again. The craving and aversion options are the clinging that is the self. There isn't a thing that's the self. That actually is the self. We sort of believe somehow we've got this kind of independent existence as a self. And although there's obviously something going on, it isn't quite like that. Um, But those tendencies to create a sort of, you know, you can sort of think, oh, I've got a favourite cup, and immediately there's that clinging, I want that cup. It just happens so quickly that we hardly notice it. But that's where a lot of our pain comes from. That's where all of our pain comes from, really, that sort of clinging. I don't know, I feel it here somewhere, usually. I can feel myself tightening, and it's very unpleasant. So there is something about the process of writing and this starting to say and trusting the process that actually opens up the heart and opens up that tendency to cling. 
Because we're okay so far. <laughs> so this, this, this process of just allowing oneself to write <clears throat> can lead to a letting go of the clinging. And there's an experience which is less involved in things like craving, judging, appropriating. So there's less sense of me separate and everything else um, out there. And more a sense of appreciation. So I think one of the things about writing as a practice is it's very appreciative at its best. So we're trying to cultivate a sense of appreciating (coughs) what's there. And actually, that's very pleasurable. Yeah. Just, just actually appreciating what's there. So I'm going to read you um, a couple of poems now that sort of illustrate what I've been saying, I hope, a bit, and to give you a break from all these ideas. So the first one is called Threshold. So there's some illustrations by my daughter in my book. This one's of a sort of doorway and an open landscape. And she did the cover as well. <clears throat> so this one's called Threshold, and it's about that sort of open receptivity and appreciation and what happens when we do that. Threshold. Stand in the doorway. There is no need to cross the line, only to hold it and let yourself be held upside down and shaken until the silver falls from your pocket. And this one's called quiddity. I sometimes find a really good word and then sometimes I forget what it means. (laughs) But quiddity means the essence of something, but it also means a trifle. And I think it says something very important about experience. There's something very essential, but it can seem a bit trifling. And this is about not clinging. Quiddity. If I could redesign desire, that magnetic stare would lose its potency. And small things which can't be owned would unlock me. Like last night's rain on a leaf hand. A cool sphere of light and water. So that's just to start looking at expressing thoughts and feelings. And so now I'm going to move on to an artistic form using language. So it's okay just to write just to do writing exercises, to um, see what happens uh, when you just write. But an artistic form using language, um, there's something very satisfying about that. Yeah. So, so to just write and just spin things out on the page, we can discover where that leads us. Um, and that is something unique. Um, so what William Stafford says is the coherence of ourself is at the back of what we're doing so just writing there's the coherence of ourselves at the back of that and meaning will arise out of that if we let it so you don't have to sort of think oh 
you know, I need to write something and make it perfect. But I find the process of working on something that's sort of come out of the mass of writing I produce um, really satisfying in itself as a process. So uh, this, is, this is my book, 29 Poems, half a dozen illustrations by my daughter. So my completed poems are a lever arch file about this thick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the drafts are probably ten times that. <laughs> so that's what I think is worth producing for other people to read yeah, out of all of that. Um, so the process of actually grappling with uh, how can I work with this, how can I make it better, has been really important for me, actually. And I really um, find that very challenging. And it definitely brings up that I'm no good thing. Uh, and sometimes when you start on something, you think, oh, this is fantastic. You know, there's loads of energy in it. And then you put it away for a week and you come back to it and you think, oh, why didn't I see that? <laughs> so there's a really interesting process there. Um, so there's an element uh, of want of want of a better sort of idea of producing something uh, by starting to make judgments that are, that attempt to bring the best possible expression to what's there within the limits of your skill. Um, and this process does take you deeper into things, and it tends to show you new ideas and meanings that you didn't know were there before. So. Um, I wrote a poem called Look, which is about the moon being in a jar on the table. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to read that to you this evening. Um, But I didn't really know what it was about until about five years after I wrote it. And it's actually about a particular kind of spiritual experience we call the bodhicitta. And once I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's really obvious. But when I wrote it, I didn't know that that's what it was about. Um... Yes, so so sometimes you're writing something and you really don't know what it means, but you do know there's something in it. Um, So a poem has an atmosphere and a resonance (coughs) and a sense of meaning and even of truth, but it can't be pinned down and completely explained, even to yourself. And it can't be turned into prose. So actually trying to pull a poem apart, I don't know, it's a bit like... I've got this horrible image of sort of pulling an animal apart to try and see what it's made of. You know, you kill it. Um, Yeah. Um, But often you can say more than one thing at a time. And I think that's quite satisfying. The poetry is quite symbolic. And the imagery says more than one thing. And often, and one of the other things is that if someone else reads it, they will actually have an experience of it that isn't the experience you had. So they will put their own meaning onto it. So to realise the best expression of something, um, a poem uses sound and form and ideas, punctuation, language generally, in a way to create something that's closer to music than ordinary speech. Um, And I thought I'd talk... So so there is a practice of actually working on writing. Um, And I'm going to talk about when it isn't a practice. So when it's focused on wanting the work to be good, 
not for the expression of what's being said uh, and shared, but so that other people think that we're good. That's such a dangerous thing um, with any art, I think, um, is to actually build up this sense of, well, I'm great because I write. Because it builds a very small sense of self. And what we're trying to do as Buddhists is to open to a much more wide and connected sense of self. So writing can easily become a kind of, it's all about me and I'm great and people think I'm wonderful, but that becomes very disconnected. And writing at its best is a connecting thing. Any art is a sort of thing that connects us all. And um, I have a particular dislike of clever work. So there's a sort of showing off of technique and ideas without really it having anything to say. Um, I might be controversial, but some conceptual arts like that, you know, it doesn't really say anything about what it is to be human. It isn't really a shared thing. Some of it's very good, but some of it really is quite empty. Uh, It ponders to the latest fashion of what's good, and often, so there are poems like that. I um, had a subscription to a poetry magazine last year, and it was beautifully produced, and it smelt really nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it left me completely cold. Mm -hmm. It was full of ideas, and it was some of the technique was very good, but it wasn't connecting, it wasn't saying anything about life, about what it is to be human, and it wasn't a real sharing, you know, like with between people. It was just sort of very clever. <laughs> is what I think. Yeah. So this, uh, this often gets published um, but there's something inauthentic about it. So I think one of the things um, I'm certainly trying to look for when I write is a sense of authenticity. Um, and I think Buddhist practice is actually becoming more and more authentic, less and less defensive so that we're quite open to who we are uh, and sort of okay with that and and working with that to transform ourselves. So I think, um, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of art around at the moment in various ways that isn't very transformative. It doesn't kind of give you a, a sense of connection or something that there's something more in life than the material. I'm going to talk about a bit later. So there's quite a lot of work in terms of understanding how poetry works, or any art, you know, if you want to be a potter or a carpenter or a painter. There's just, there's a lot about technique, and uh, in poetry you certainly have to read poetry uh, and uh, learn about all the different techniques. And uh, so I thought I would read you a couple of things that are actually formal poems. The first one is a haiku. It took me a year to write this. (laughs) So um, there's all sorts of things about haiku, but in Japanese they're five, seven, five in terms of three lines of of, uh, syllables, five, seven, five. And uh, they're supposed to be very immediate in terms of the sense of now, and there's all sorts of other things. And um, I'd been on ret- a solitary retreat in a cabin in Scotland, and uh, on the last morning I sat outside, and Orion was over the ridge of the mountain, but the sun seemed to be sort of 
clearing the light down the valley towards the stars. It was really beautiful. Um, and there was something about that that captured the sense of my retreat and what had happened to me. So um, there's a little illustration for this as well. At sunrise, first frost, Orion over the ridge, streams in spate, new light. I'll read it again. At sunrise, first frost, Orion over the ridge, streams in spate, new light. And uh, I'm going to read this poem called Defying Gravity, which is a sonnet. Um, I had a friend who died of AIDS. Uh, She was, um, I'm going to find this quite hard to do. She was a very lively woman, and she died when she was 30. And um, this image of her playing with my daughter um, when we were away in the Yorkshire Dales uh, kept coming back to me. So, uh, this took quite a long time to write as well. Um, I just couldn't get it right, really. But a sonnet has uh, ten syllables in a line, like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? So, um, so this has ten syllable lines apart from the last line. And it also has a turn in the middle and a resolution at the end. So uh, it seemed like quite a mm, healing <laughs> thing to write this. So uh, what Jane did was she got Helen on a chair and, um, we, and, and four people round the legs and did a sort of rocket thing with her. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so you is Helen, my daughter. And uh, yeah. It's called Defying Gravity. You were four, stayed awake for the party in the house next door. At New Year, Jane sits you on a chair, says, Promise to hold tight, keep your eyes shut, right? Your lips are crescent as we lift to loft you high. Then Jane says, Vertical takeoff, you're in a rocket. We swoop and sway, conjure flight. And Jane tells the story of the journey back to Earth. We plant her tree by the cataract at Keld, the beck a running gate for noise. Our cold hands grapple with the wire to stop the deer. New Year, water lidded under ice. Now we're on our backs, pillowed by the snow. Angels, because we know how to fall. So Keld is a place in the Yorkshire Dales. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, those poems, I mean, free poetry can often take a lot of work as well because it, hung, it often hangs together on the sound of words. But to try and make a poem as good as it could is a lot of work, but it's also a really strong practice. It takes a lot of concentration, it takes a lot of commitment, um, and yeah, and I find that very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, try, trying to get better in a certain kind of way. 
uh, and to express you know whatever I've got to say in a better in the best way possible. Uh, and that is a kind of overcoming of the self because there is constantly this kind of you're not good enough, this is great, you know, and all that kind of toing and froing that uh, you have to sort of wrestle with to write. Yeah. Even just uh, not putting the washing away and going sitting down at the table, you know, is a spiritual practice. so this process can be very exciting and satisfying I think if it wasn't satisfying it probably wouldn't be worth doing Um, it can feel as if you're really in the depths of experience and very meaningful and I really think this has helped me to change my particular tendency to perfectionism I don't worry about that so much anymore. So I'm going to move on to created by an individual. So um, this isn't particularly coherent in a way. It's just this is about my experience and a few thoughts. Um, But obviously being created by an individual means you need to use your imagination. Um, so what's written doesn't have to be factual or reasonable um, and it opens up to a world that's beyond the material world Um, and I think in our culture that's really important because it's so much emphasised you know, how you look, where you live, what your job is um, and because we've lost, I suppose, the, the Christian basis of our society, which had a sort of spiritual, uh, was the sort of spiritual basis of our society, we've actually lost a sense of there's more to the world than that. And I think that's so important um, because it's so utilitarian and there's more to us than utility. So I think one of the things about using your imagination is that it's not utilitarian. It's just about being human and actually opening to the fact that life is much more than the material. So I also think science can be like that, and I didn't want to miss science out. So I've got a quote from Einstein. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So he says, The intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honours the servant, but has forgotten the gift. So that's one of the reasons why I write, really. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a Buddhist. Um, Because utility is such an awful way to treat ourselves. (laughs) We're all amazing. Yeah, and I think it is seeing that, uh, you know, at at the core of us, there's something amazing. Um, And the spiritual life itself is an act of imagination. The whole of life is an act act of imagination, but what we imagine is really important. So if we imagine the effect of our actions, that's ethics. Yeah, that we imagine where this is going to lead. And it's like, well, do I want that consequence? And, you know, and often our feelings drive us in particular ways. But really, imagining the effect of our actions is ethics. And um, order members do a practice where they visualise uh, a figure. Um, 
something like this, or some of the pictures, the tankers in the hall. And really what you're imagining is a quality of enlightenment embodied. So that's an act of imagination, because you're imagining that you could become that in a certain kind of way. There's a lot more to the practice than that. But in a way, you're imagining yourself with that quality at the end of the Buddhist path. So compassionate, uh, appropriate action, full of love, um, seeing that everything is connected, all of the, whatever quality it is, purity, that really attracts you. Um, those figures represent that. And it's imagining that we can become that. It's really important. And we can imagine a society that's based on things like love and mutual support and care for the planet. And if we aren't imagining that, which you know most people aren't these days, um, well, the consequences are pretty dire. I never, I don't like that thing about saving the planet. We're, we're saving ourselves. The planet will be fine <laughs> eventually. You know, when we've destroyed ourselves, it will recover. So, uh, yeah. So the whole of life can be an act of imagination and the way you imagine life and the way we all imagine life leads to whatever life becomes for us. So um, I've got a couple of poems here which are quite light-hearted, which are about how we construct the world all the time. We sort of imagine the world's out there and somehow it's just happening, but... um, You know when you can see a friend that's got a particular habit that keeps getting in their way... And we can't see that for ourselves. It's, it's, you know, you can, you know I, I can see in my friends and sometimes in myself that actually that's because I create a particular picture of the world. Um, and somehow what I'm putting out comes back. So, you know, if you're very grumpy but you want friends, it's not going to work. You have to, <laughs> you have to imagine that, you know, actually, if I'm really friendly to other people, they might be friendly back. <laughs> Uh, you know, because actually, I, you know, you care about them. Um, yeah. So, um, this poem's called Going to the Dogs. Um, so it's me lying in bed, being woken up by this noise and creating a particular world out of it. Uh, and of course, that world changes depending on experience. And then at the end of the poem, I have this other experience of something similar. Going to the dogs. With a wake of engine noise and barking, a power-assisted dog sled, harness, reins and all, passes under my window at 7am on weekdays and wakes me. That's how I saw it. Then I saw it, a red truck. The dogs were not visible. They must be transported inside, running a doggy dynamo. Today, as I was travelling towards Hereford, a passing car barked for no apparent reason. Things are not as they seem, I thought. (laughs) And uh, this one, I have to confess, no, I have to say, I do not... I do not actually own this item, this ice cream scoop that's in this poem, and it isn't really about me, but it's this poem is really about how we get things completely out of proportion because we think the wrong things matter. It's called What Matters. <coughs> the ice cream scoop isn't working. The release on the handle is jammed. A hemisphere of silver chrome 
and a spring-loaded arc of steel, usually as efficient as an eyelid. I've tried jiggling, gentle prizing, giving it a good shake, tapping it on the draining board, whacking it with the palm of my hand, and they'll be here soon. So there is something about imagination and imagining the world we live in that's really important. And obviously writers do that and artists do that, but we all do it. And there's something about, in terms of creating by an individual that I'm talking about now, which is about bringing us closer and more sensitively in to our experience. And to, and to be more intimate with experience. So one thing you could do is just try looking at an object. It doesn't have to be an attractive object. It can be anything. Um, so this happened to me with a wall fan once. I did an exercise, a writing exercise. We just looked at something, and it wasn't a particularly attractive thing. And... Um, well, being really there is an aspect of mindfulness... And um, there's something about letting something else work on you. So I got very fond of this fan. I found it quite sort of beautiful, even though it was all dusty and plasticky. um, So rather than putting ourselves at the centre, there's a sort of going out. um, And things can surprise us. We get out of our usual way of thinking just by connecting with something else. It might be a candle, it might be a set of spoons. But just being with that and allowing it to sort of speak to us, I think is really important. And writing is something that does that. You're focusing on something. I often write from an image, um, but different writers write from different... Um, inspiration really Um, and there's something about really being connected and less in ourselves that's very very pleasurable Um, and it's just yeah sort of letting go and opening that's very pleasurable so I thought I would read this poem called Rothko Room which uh, so this was about 30 years ago when the Rothko paintings were still in the Tate Gallery and the room was uh, connected by doors to other galleries from one gallery to another. Um, I don't know if all of you know Rothko. I've seen quite a lot of you do. But his paintings are like blocks of colour, often quite um, maroony, dark colours, some of them. Um, and this was something just... To, and I had a poster um, that had belonged to a boyfriend of mine. And I never knew why he liked it, but he'd actually seen the paintings and I hadn't. So when I was at the table one day, I thought, oh, I'm going to go and see those. Because I couldn't... From this poster, I could not tell what, what these bits of colour were about. And then I saw the painting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Rothko Room. Let me tell you about this place... It's a gallery. 
Light penetrates from above and the walls are white. The paintings have been lifted out of the studio's clutter and spatter. It's a walk-through room and people are walking through on their way to Turner. I'm sitting on a bench in the centre looking at these pointless bars of colour. I must have the wrong eyes, there's nothing to see here. Just rectangles of red and black, or the possibility of purple. Almost colourless, almost shapeless, almost. These floating colours haunt the ground in which they're suspended. They're reaching through seeing. I feel as if I've built my house in strange hills. Nothing is explained. They could be seabirds with open wings, or the call of a bell on a distant evening, or an invitation to stay, to bear what's beyond bearing, to know that's what we're for. So I think there is something about connecting with what's there and letting it work on us even though we don't understand it. I think there's such a tendency that's so easy to close down because we don't understand something. Um, I was talking to Ratna Prabha about my husband uh, reads a lot of science books. He's a mathematician. And I say to him, that looks like quite a hard read. Do you understand it? And he goes, not all of it, no. <laughs> <laughs> And and there is something about being open to that very mysterious thing or things that we don't understand. You know, I can sort of feel myself shutting down sometimes. Like I might be reading a bit of the Dharma and think, you know, I don't really get that. And then I have to kind of think, of course I don't. (laughs) I'm not enlightened, you know. So, So, and I think there's, yeah, there's something in, in writing that's about that, about that sensitivity and staying open to experience. And it's very enlivening. Yeah, it's very surprising. It makes life very rich. Because uh, simple things are really enjoyable. So I'm going to finish with... Um, I've got something about integration and getting to know yourself um, because of the concentration of an activity. So I'm going to just uh, give a little quote from Ted Hughes and then I'm going to talk about play before I finish. So I think Ted Hughes perfectly, uh, in uh, an essay of his called Poetry in the Making, talks about the process of writing in terms of fishing. And William Stafford also talks about writing in terms of fishing. But I think, you know, meditation um, or any art, uh, we can look at meditation in terms of fishing as well. And he says, your whole being rests lightly on your float. So you can imagine Ted Hughes in the river in his waders. But not drowsily, very alert. So the least twitch of the float arrives like an electric shock. And you're not only watching the float, you are aware in a horizonless and slightly mesmerised way, like listening to the double bass in orchestral music, of the fish below there in the dark. 
At every moment, your imagination is alarming itself with the size of the thing slowly leaving the weeds and approaching your bait. Or with the world of beauties down there, suspended in total ignorance of you. And the whole purpose of this concentrated excitement in this arena of apprehension and unforeseeable events is to bring up some lovely solid thing like living metal from a world where nothing exists but those inevitable facts which raise life out of nothing and return it to nothing. I think that sort of summarises the whole thing about imagination and sensitivity to experience. So kindly awareness is really vital, I think, to life and writing. And um, when I get stuck, I play, sometimes, on a good day. (laughs) So I had a terrible time when I just couldn't write anything, and I just started to write uh, in particular forms. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a villanelle. So a villanelle is, um, it's 22 lines. And the first and the third line repeat. So the first line of this poem is, my husband's a fan of the arsenal. (laughs) And the third line is, match of the day is inevitable. (laughs) And uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. So you have six three-line verses, and then the last verse is four lines. So those two lines are the last two lines. And each line is ten syllables, like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And one and three in each verse, rhyme with each other. And then all the middle lines rhyme with each other. So I've got upgrade and crusade and afraid and things like that as my middle rhyming lines. So um, and I just had such fun doing this, and I think that's really important to play and enjoy sort of what you're doing. So I'll just read this. So I cheated, and it's called Because. <laughs> because my, my husband's a fan of the Arsenal, and our ethics exclude a sky upgrade, match of the day is inevitable. He's from Highbury, so it's cultural, like a Templar knight's love of the crusade. My husband's a fan of the arsenal. He reads fiction, hard maths, and he's musical, and we have lots in common. I'm afraid match of the day is inevitable on Saturday nights when it's seasonal. No diversion can entice or dissuade my husband, a fan of the Arsenal, from watching them play Spurs or Newcastle. For God's sake, kick it! Or yes! Or well played! Match of the day is inevitable, though the score today was lamentable and his devotion has not been repaid. My husband's a fan of the Arsenal. He says poetry is impossible. He is deaf to the charms of Inversnade. My husband's a fan of the Arsenal. Match of the day is inevitable. (laughs) (laughs) Inversnade is a poem by Gerald Manley Hopkins that happily rhymes with (laughs) played and repaid. So I think play is very important in life. It stops us taking ourselves too seriously. And uh, I'm just going to end there. Uh, We've been on this journey through um, looking at creating. 
using imagination. Trying to find my list here. looking at an artistic form using language that's created by an individual and um, expresses feelings and ideas and uses language. And that's a poem. And I hope there are a few ideas about there about why writing poetry is a spiritual practice. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 